This episode of the This Week in XR podcast is brought to you by our friends at Zapper. Zapper's XR Pioneers Conference is back on October 11th for its third year. And once again, you can learn how to take your business from ordinary to extraordinary using immersive technologies. Zapper's free user conference brings together thousands of designers, developers, marketers, and strategists to take their work to the next level. They have a great conference lineup, including a This Week in XR special, where myself and Roni will be hosting a one-off panel featuring former head of XR at Disney, John Snoddy, and Zapper CEO, Casper Thykier. We'll be covering the past, present, and future of the wonderful world of XR. Through real-world examples, we'll share how people are using XR to change the way they communicate across their marketing, packaging, learning, training, and development to drive better results. Discover how to take advantage of the XR tools of the future and propel your business in a new era of growth and engagement. Carving out just a little time in your day to tune in live will give you access to exclusive sessions, industry deep dives, workshops, and technical demonstrations, giving you access to some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the industry. Save your spot now for October 11th and register at zapper.com backslash XR-Pioneer. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz for This Week in XR. Roni's off this week, but Ted and I are here bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I am, and as for those that are looking at the visuals, you'll notice that I'm yet in another (laughs) hotel room in another city, of course, this time in Northern California, because I was up at the uh, Meta Conference. Wait, uh, wait, you're jumping ahead. It's Friday, September 29th. Uh, 2023, uh, and our guests today are Branks, Banks Boot and Max Berman, the co-founders of Kitbash 3D, uh, and uh, they make a lot of the assets we see in movies and television and in video games, and so I'm looking forward to a great conversation with them because they're one of those companies that's everywhere without us knowing it. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting conversation. So, of course, top of the news this week is uh, MetaConnect. And uh, they had a number of different reveals, which we should get into. I, they're going to be highly impactful uh, in the XR world. They are the dominant headset, and uh, they are going to keep that position for some time, uh, even after the Apple Vision Pro launches. Now, the Quest 3, I have not used it, but you have. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like the Vision Pro kind of on a budget, right? Because it, too, is a, is they are hoping to emphasize mixed reality and kind of reignite the momentum they uh, had for the Quest for so long. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Uh, the, the best headset you can get on a budget. Uh, the resolution uh, bump is a couple hundred pixels per eye on, on each direction. I, I have that resolution already on the Quest Pro, and, and it's is, nice. It's nice. Yeah. And and we have Quest Pros as well, and I think this is actually a little better. Really? Um, I think they learned how to uh, do some more design work on the pancake lenses uh, and optimize it. They had some engineering sessions where they were talking about what they were doing. Uh, they talked a lot about the, the, the front-facing cameras and the amount of coverage, the new controllers, uh, the the new device is more comfortable than a Quest 2. And oddly enough, even though it is slightly heavier by a couple of grams, it feels lighter because of the um, it's closer to your weight face. dynamics. Yeah, it's closer uh, yeah, to your face. As you, yeah. as you pull things closer to your face, you get less of the pull-down effect. And the back strap 
even just the regular strap that comes with it is designed a little differently. Uh, so there, there are some improvements. And the big improvement, obviously, taking a page from the Quest Pro, which we all know didn't really quite take off and, and capture uh, the imagination and the pocketbooks of a lot of people. Um, they're using uh, color cameras um, that, that are um, better and better each time. And while this is still not at a, at a level of like perfect fidelity that you really believe that you're not looking at video anymore, it's, it's considerably better. And once you're in game experiences and playing different uh, demonstration things that they showed at the conference, you pretty much lose any of the flaw effect. It really feels uh, really nice and it's very effective. You know, things break through the walls. Come, it's a bummer that Roni's not here because the Magic Leap was really one of the pioneers of doing this idea of having materials, you know, come through the walls and become part of the surfaces in your environment. And they're doing that well now. And the early uh, um, product stuff they showed was was quite good. So, oh, good because a lot of a lot of the reviewers, a lot of the reviewers pointed out that it's going to be all about the software. And, uh, you know, can they create really compelling applications for mixed reality? So, I mean, a lot of these applications are going to end up on the Vision Pro, right? So they're, they're companies that are... We're at the, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So did you try the updated Ray-Ban stories from I Luxottica? Did, I, I did. And I must tell you uh, that, you know, in my, in my best diplomatic way, and I'm happy to talk about this uh, in, in the most positive uh, light forward, out of all the stage presenters uh, on the keynote stage, the woman who presented the new Ray-Ban um, offerings was unbelievable. She was so committed. She literally stole the show. She was so committed, so much fun on stage, so genuinely into the product that she's working on with her team that it was infectious and it was lovely to watch. The audience was with her. Uh, and they were not really with the other personalities on stage. Well, Marcus, you know, um, Mark, he, he looks remarkably bulked up, but, uh, and, and I think, and I think, yeah, but he's, as always, kind of over practiced, a little bit stiff. Uh, and, and I'm sure uh, that's uh, not even, yeah, that's not even sort of the, I think the, 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 the critique and the vibe that, that came away. First of all, you're right about the MMA. You could actually see the, um, the tape marks on his, uh, <laughs> on his hands. And it's interesting. So, you know, good on him for doing that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, taking care of his body and, 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 and using that as a stress reliever. Um, I just think, you know, they showed a lot of stuff, right? They showed a lot of where they were headed with, with generative AI, uh, and they had kind of a, a interesting thesis around using well, named personalities. Yeah, that was so weird. I, I'm still processing that. And we will see if that approach really engages people. Obviously, they're thinking about younger people using this, I think. But this whole, you know, look, I mean, there, there's going to be a massive, massive combat over these AI co-pilots and which one of them is going to become essentially the new operating system for our devices. Yeah, this is big business, right? This is no fooling. Um, but it, it, it looked like uh, Mark's take was he was a little unsure of everything. He didn't. He was kind of market testing it in front of the audience, which is kind mm. of okay if you go into it and say, you know, and, and be sort of genuine and honest and say, I'm not quite sure where we're headed with all this, but I want to yeah. give you a sense of what we're thinking. <laughs> but they didn't do that. Yeah. Um, sort of the same with Boz. But this woman, I can't remember her name. You could easily look it up. Yeah. Who who was all about the Ray Bans was the opposite of that. She was. You know whether or not you like what she was doing, she was fully committed to it, and it was damn impressive. Well, let me let me pra let me praise them on the Ray Bans for a second because they are the most comfortable, 
uh, augmented glasses that you can mm -hmm. buy, and they look good. Yeah, they look uh, like the, real my, my my critique of them, and I wear them all the time, uh, is that the sound is tinny, and the cameras were useless. They were terrible. So they fixed all that. Yeah. So they really, and they did not raise the price. So good on them. And uh, I, I hope I get my hands on they. They sent me these other ones to test, and I kept them. Yeah. <laughs> so the, you're really the, not the allowed, but they were good enough for me to break the rules. The new ones are good. They're lighter. They're more comfortable. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a second gen product, right? And yeah. the thing of obviously on the software layer that is coming that we couldn't see yet, they, they have a voice assistant, right? Which is a little clunky yes. still, but but we'll get there. But the contextual idea that the cameras will see an object and you can say, what is that? Where am I? You know, what 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 model of car is this that I'm looking at? What is this structure that I'm looking at? And it will give you textual information is pretty interesting. So without a physical screen, it is using the cameras to define the world around you and then give you contextual information. Uh, so that's the, the kind of coming feature, which is pretty interesting. And you know, I, I'm a big fan of the Bose glasses and have for years and that, you know, they, they had a big push and that kind of fell off because the sound was so good. It, it so was so good. I never used the Ray-Ban glasses. We had them and I was like, we tried it. The sound I know good. if you're listening to what I do and walking the dogs and listening to podcasts, it's, it's yeah, adequate. It it's adequate. Yeah. It's adequate, but music does not sound good. Right. Uh, and, and, and now it, it does. Yeah, now and it, it bleeds. People next to you could hear it. That's another issue with those. So, but uh, anyway, I think it's a great product. And once they get the display inside the glasses, those things are going to be um, very, very compelling, I think. Uh, even using, you know, just straight up micro displays that are screen reflectors yeah, or lets you see the ca camera. Working on all the other parts of it, and then they'll yeah. get to the display when it's ready. Yeah. So I, I tested um, some different uh, AR screen extenders this week, uh, and, and I won't talk about the ones I didn't like, but the Rokid AR Max starts to be, uh, to capture some of the excitement at, we saw at CES when there were a, a dozen of these devices on display. But of course, most of them haven't come to market, and many of them won't. Uh, but these guys uh, are bringing it. And they're iterating as are TCL and Nreal, uh, Xreal, and others. Right. Uh, so I, I, I don't think I was wrong about this category. Ted, I think they're going to anybody who plays games or consumes video uh, should, you know, uh, lay an eye on these because I think they're going to get cheaper and better. And you know, this time next year, they're they are going to be out there in the wild, and we we will be seeing them. I think. Yeah. I, I never thought the way to the face was going to be as a phone accessory. But when you think about it, it does make a lot of sense because you're never well, yeah, going to get the cost down. Yeah, and the and the form factor, you know, is and better. the usability of it. Like, what do we do with our phone? Where will we, where would we like our phone on our face? Okay, well, there you go. It'll be interesting this year CES to see yeah. uh, how how commercialized because last year there was a lot of stuff, but it was kind of pre-commercial. Now maybe we'll start to see some commercial offerings out in the wild that you know will compete um, and and present that use case for us. And, you know, the big thing is it's got to be wireless, right? We don't want to tether it. Yes, that is a problem. Yeah, Right now they're all tethered. And and uh, so that would be the next step in my view. Uh, one thing I noticed just watching the live stream of uh, the keynote was the minute he started talking about AI, people sat up and looked up from their phones. Mm -hmm. And I, I get that response everywhere. Right. I'm, you know, teaching uh, graduate students who are in the uh, emerging media, immersive media uh, graduate program at ASU. And it's all they want to talk about. The minute I introduce them to generative AI, they're like, forget about this immersive computing thing. This is this could change the world. 
So uh, I and I thought I I felt that yesterday. Did you feel that at the? Um, at- yes, in person. Yes, um, I, I think. And maybe this is just me being me. I, I think there, and you know, I'm, I'm notoriously sort of anti-social on anything social media oriented, as you know, and we, we often <laughs> talk about it. it. Just you know, it doesn't really add to my my life experience, so I, I largely sort of push it away. I have other ways to communicate and 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 you know, uh, sort of interface with people like you and I do in, in various ways. So. Um, the, the technical sessions that uh, you probably didn't get a chance to see because they weren't live streamed were actually really interesting about the Lama and Lama 2 and their approach. And there was a lot there that I'm sure you can watch and, and see and then afterwards they record everything and present it. But the the top line uh, of, and I guess because it is at, the, at its core a social media company, they're looking to find, you know, I guess anytime I see Paris Hilton as a as a calling card for something, uh, it, it yep. just makes me really. It's time to be nervous. suspicious. <laughs> yeah, and and I look, I get that they're trying to find a unique approach to this compared to what uh, Microsoft and Google and and others are doing. But you do know that you know they're partnering with Microsoft and Bing on the back end as well. Right? Yes, one so, thing we so. didn't mention that it was that they were going to get cloud streaming games from Microsoft. Yeah, uh, which obviously promises to be much more graphic and. Uh, and and extend their offering um, substantially. Yeah, and the experience of of the Quest Three, you know, they felt like it felt like in the keynote they kind of glossed over it, and maybe because to your point, they kind of know people really perk up and want to listen to what an AI strategy is from one of the largest companies in the world that does computing, you know, in mm-hmm, some fashion. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, so, but obviously for me, you know, I'm all about learning more about the the next gen device and where that goes. Uh, a lot of the demos that they were able to bring me into were um, using, you know, a traditional screen and showing screen extension stuff in MR, which was very clever. Uh, I got a chance to look at um, uh, Jake Zims, um, who is from Sony. We'll have him on uh, in uh, maybe a couple weeks, I guess. Um, yes, we do. Whenever he's on the schedule, um, I got a chance to play a little vertical slice of his Ghostbusters uh, mixed reality game. It's really quite fun and clever, and does exactly what it's supposed to do. I got a chance to do a lot of the Stranger Things uh, mixed reality game. Oh, how uh, is that? Is that good? It's really fun. It's very clever. It's, it's from really Tender Claws, right? It's hard. There, there's some very uh, advanced navigation stuff you've got to do, wow. and. Um, there's, I, I can't remember the name of it, but Sega, I think it's called Samba something. Sega does, does a, a take on Beat Saber in MR with two maracas and you have to hit <laughs> play and it's fun. Um, it's a lot of fun things, uh, you know, and, cool. and a few other things that we got a chance to see. Uh, they showed me a little bit of Assassin's Creed, uh, which is beautiful. Uh, and, and, but I'm all, I always have this sort of challenge, even with the best adaptions of traditional game stuff into virtual reality. Um, it's it's not as clever as I want it to be. It's very much you've got to navigate like a game and yeah. joystick your way around and do stuff. But it is beautiful, and if you're a hardcore gamer that like that stuff, you'll probably dig it. So there was a lot. There was a lot there. To, to so see. so a bunch of other news. Let's rip through it before we okay. get to our guests. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, you know, not getting a lot of news uh, is Amazon. Well, it did on Monday when it was announced. Amazon is going to invest up to four billion dollars in Anthropic. Uh, they've got a chatbot called Claude. It's going to be uh, integrated into Microsoft Cloud, uh, and um, and uh, yeah, four billion dollars is real money. But yeah. Am- Amazon, like Apple, is sitting on a lot of it. So yeah, well, in, uh, in a much smaller news that also kind of got glossed over, 
uh, to your point about the new Ray Bans, Amazon introduced their next gen Echo frames. Uh, which yeah, we hit that. We hit that last week. But um, yeah, I think. And again, they're upgrading Alexa. Yeah. Uh, into a true AI chatbot that's going to do more than play music and and read the news. So I think you'll see competitive stuff going on there. Yeah. Again, as as we said, I think this chatbot thing is going to be a fight to the finish to find the one or two that end up being standards yeah. uh, along those lines. Open AI. Uh, is working on a device that will compete with the uh, device called Humane, which is the wearable AI that has some limited AR capabilities, but mostly is there as a chatbot uh, yeah. that will uh, travel with you and uh, start to understand your patterns and so forth. So uh, I, I think this is just the beginning of, oh, oh and the other big news, conference. other big news, chat GPT from OpenAI is integrating DALI um, and so it will be able to help you prompt. And if you ask it to, it will give you illustrations along with uh, text uh, content. And of course, a lot of that text content now is going to be uh, audio content with all the different portable uh, iterations of it. Uh, so uh, pretty interesting developments in AI. They just come so darn quickly. Uh, bad news this week at Epic Games. Yeah, I was just curious. I was just actually because I got some internal stuff about it, and I was just googling while you were talking to see if that was public now, which it is. So go ahead and tell people what's going on there. Well, they they laid off sixteen percent of their workforce, which is eight hundred and thirty jobs um, all around the world, not just where they're headquartered in Cary, North Carolina. Um, some of our friends, whose names I will not mention, lost their jobs, uh, and uh, it just seems like they are sort of taking their medicine, as many tech companies did earlier. This year, they're a private companies, so we don't know exactly what's up, but I think they overextended themselves during the pandemic. They anticipated stronger growth, and and of course, they're just sort of, uh, I think, rebalancing the business around people not being <laughs> home in front of their computers uh, with all this excess time to kill. So I think they uh, had to rationalize the business. Yeah, I think they had a lot of front end, money. front end spend on R&D that they thought would you know see a bigger, faster return, and it hasn't. And you know, I think they're just being very honest with where they are and how they need to to manage that business. And and you know they're waiting to go public, so I, I think they they did not want to show gargantuan losses. In the yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, good good luck to them. Uh, Unreal Engine, obviously key to both the uh, filmmaking today as well as creating games. So uh, uh, hopefully, it won't affect that uh, too dramatically. Uh, and uh, then there was a, I, I, yeah, we miss Roni this week because there was a BCI announcement from mm. a company called Onward that is doing uh, similar things to Neuralink. In, in this case, uh, again, paralyzed people, people with spinal injuries, uh, if they think about moving, they can control uh, an external stimulator that uh, causes joints to move. Uh, so that is pretty crazy because, uh, again, it's one more step to, you know, uh, there being hope for paralyzed people to uh, be able to uh, gain control of their limbs again. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly fantastic aspiration and a great use for for brain computer interface, you know, a fantastically valuable, ethically positive use for it. So it's good. Well, let's bring in our guests Max Berman and Banks Boot or Boote. I don't know. He'll have to correct me. Super good uh, name, regardless. <laughs> super good name uh, for a super good uh, 
company, Kitbash 3D. If you're at home in front of your computer, look them up. Their work is beautiful and uh, increasing in popularity. Hello, Max. Hey, Charlie. How you doing? Good. Good to see you. Do you know Ted? I don't. Nice to meet you, Ted. Nice to meet you, Max. You and, look uh, awfully familiar to me. I feel like maybe we have met at some point uh, in the line of the work that we do, but I could be wrong. You know, videos. Yeah, are- Maybe we have. It's a uh, it's a small world out here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, here's here's Banks. He he was here and then he left and now he's back. Banks Boutte. It sounds like. How, yeah, we have to figure out. I I don't know if it's Boot or Boutte. You, you nailed Boutte. it, Ted. You know how to read my you. French accents. Yeah, you you nailed the the aigu. And almost I got it. <laughs> no one nails that. Banks, good to see you again. Likewise. Um, uh, unfortunately, we don't have Roni, but I have Ted with me, and uh, we've been having a spirited discussion about AI and uh, all the announcements that came out of MetaConnect this week. Um, and of course, we've been talking about your very exciting uh, product and progress in populating the uh, virtual worlds with your uh, assets. Uh, so, so maybe you can describe for our guests, in your own words, what Kitbash 3D does and um, where we're where we're seeing your work where we're without, headed with all where, where we're seeing your work without knowing it mm. <laughs> sure yeah um max maybe I'll, I'll give broad strokes and 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 add some add some good detail um we started max and i have been friends for a decade uh actually we're friends for a decade before we started kitbash in 2017 and we were uh always talking about how technology was changing the way that we um, not only consume things online, but the way that humans interact with one another. And we believed in this idea starting way back in 2015, we were always talking about 2025. And that we felt like, you know, today the internet is 2D. You scroll up and down, you swipe left and right, but tomorrow you will go forward and backward. And when the Z axis comes to the internet, fundamentally the fabric of human connectivity is gonna change. And so we believe that is an inevitability. And so we thought, well, what are the key pieces of that that will really need to be evolved in order for us to um, realize that? And so we built the video game and we made uh, Sleep Tight on Nintendo Switch. We were actually the first Unreal game to port to Nintendo Switch. And in the process of doing that, Max had a, a very successful visual effects career. He worked on Iron Man and Game of Thrones, Far Cry, Halo, pretty much all of the big IPs. And we knew that Assets were a massive problem for studios, the way that they were managing assets and how um, how you weren't able to store assets or, or work from one project to another using them. But what we learned making our own game is that assets would be a prohibitive barrier for individuals on the way in. And so Kitbash started there as an idea from being independent game developers into how do we help not only the big studios around the world, but the individuals realize their vision. So then the first thing we brought to market was our 3D asset library. And we made them in cohesive styles and we did four updates along the way, one free update each year um, that got us to a place that made it really easy for studios to quickly iterate on having a premium asset library that they didn't have to manage along the way. And that gave us um, uh, really great opportunities to work with some of the largest movies and game companies in the world, and then also individual artists in over 100 countries. 
Um, and then Max, maybe you want to you take it from here. We, uh, we uh, along the way, really started to connect with the community and figured out the next chapter of it. Yeah, <clears throat> I'll, I'll say, you know, we set this kind of marker of, you know, when we look at what are the, the blockers to this metaverse um, or whatever you want to call the, the 3D internet. Um, and we said, you know, there's a content flywheel that needs to happen here. Uh, if you don't have a lot of people creating content, you're not driving users. If you don't have users, then people aren't creating content. You know, that's that flywheel that we need to get going. Um, so we kind of set this goal for ourselves of could we make it so that someone who's never touched 3D before can build a world and share it with a friend within 24 hours um, from start to finish. Um, and so that's really been the thing that we've been working towards. And last year we created Mission of Minerva, which is a free kit with training and using Unreal and Blender, which are, are free softwares. And um, you know, we saw 60,000 people show up and, and build a, a, this Buzz Lightyear sort of world and kind of create this galaxy together. Um, and that really was kind of the milestone of like, okay, you know, the the kits themselves and the assets themselves are kind of advanced enough where you don't really need to do much to them other than like play with them like Legos. And you can create something that looks AAA quality or, you know, like a blockbuster visual effects um, film. Um, you know, along this process, though, interoperability has been the other thing that's been in our heads. You know, when we're serving, you know, all these different studios who all have different pipelines and artists in all these different stages. Um, and our own team is using so many different softwares and moving 3D data around. Uh, basically, we ran into the pain of interoperability, I think, a lot faster than most people. Uh, and so it became something that, um, that we have to solve. Um, and so that's been a lot of our focus as well over the last couple of years is um, how do we make sure that when you create 3D data, that that data is accessible and usable everywhere? Interesting. So, so it sounds like from what I'm hearing, you have kind of two business models and maybe one has started to overtake the other. But it sounds like you have a professional services model to service the big studios like the one I work for and others. Um, and I'm curious how you deal with security and privacy and, and all that for that model. But it sounds like the bigger opportunity is a more universal use case for developers of all size and, um, and, and level of sophistication to kind of tap into uh, a lot of assets easily and build them into their worlds and lower their costs, increase their efficiency, right? So it sounds like there's, there's two things going on there as one sort of become in the background and one more in the foreground. Is that, am I correct about that or the difference? We story? look at them as the same because we, you know, we believe studios are made up of people and, and artists who are independent artists go work for studios and people who work for studios branch out and make their own projects or, or honing their skills on their free time. Um, so we look at that again as, as a flywheel. And, and so we try to treat those two things and say, you know, if what we're building doesn't work for, you know, professional studios uh, at the highest levels, uh, then individuals shouldn't be using that stuff. Um, and if it's not easy enough for, you know, a beginner to get their hands on and work with, then it's not really going to speed up the professionals. Um, so we do try to look at both of those in tandem. So could you give us an example of maybe with, you know, something that's not under NDA, something that's public, of a big, big studio use case or a big gaming company use case, and then maybe a more individual UGC use case? Give us, give the listeners a sense of, of, sure. oh, I get that. I see that. That's successful. They've done that. And, oh, I've seen these guys do that. 
you know, kind of thing. Yeah, the I, I don't. Yep. I just want to interrupt quickly and make sure that our listeners understand what an asset is. <laughs> it would um, go all right, exactly. When, yeah. So when when you are making a video game or what's called a level, um, you know, you start out with a blank piece of paper and you need to put the sky in and you need to put the ground in, and then you need to populate it with three D objects, buildings, and cars, and the road, whatever you're imagining. And so Kitbash has basically two products. So you weren't wrong about that. One is what they started out with, like their kits. And the kits are whole little worlds that you can get. And they're extraordinarily inexpensive. They're some of the more sophisticated ones, maybe a couple hundred dollars. Uh, but you're talking about things that would have would take even an experienced modeler, you know, days and days to create. So if I need to so, build like a city or an underground world or yeah, a aquatic yeah. world or something like that, you've got it's, to rebuild. It, it is like having Legos. I had my students using the free uh, assets constantly to build things because it, it's, a, it's a fast path to building a place in a game engine. Mm. And when we talk about interoperability, we're talking about can you use it in Unity? Can you use it in Unreal Engine and all the other emerging AR and soon-to-be AI platforms? They've gotten so big, they made so many kits. How many kits do you have now? Uh, just north of 100. So, which is okay. insane. And the kits come with a lot of different mixed assets. Right. So, so um, they ended up with so many assets attached to so many kits, right? That you could often be in the situation of, oh, darn, I want that one building. I don't want that whole world. Just drag it and, from one kit to the other, right? And so they've created something called Cargo. Um, and it's uh, essentially an asset store that that brings in all the little assets in the bigger kits so that you could shop for, for example, that one building from that one model without having to buy the so whole like, kit. Like stealing the asset from your Lego kit to your other kit, right? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I got it. now back to your question. Having yeah. settled all that for people who were scratching their heads and hopefully did not turn off the show uh, when we started to talk geek speak. Uh, but um, how is Cargo going and where do people find that? Sure. Uh, yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll answer. Maybe uh, I'll take Ted's question and then Banks, Please. if you want yeah. to take um, uh, Charlie's question. Um, on, in terms of the, the synergy between prof uh, professional studios and independent artists, um, you know, the one that comes to mind is Terminator Dark Fate. So we built a kit specifically for Terminator Dark Fate called Aftermath. And the, I mean, they needed a ton of just rubble piles and destruction and how many movies out there and games are looking for destroyed buildings and rubble piles. Um, so one of the benefits of this is, cool, what, why don't we make it instead of you make it? And then you can use this for the project. But then uh, it's available on Kitbash for anyone to use. Um, and so, you know, made it to make sure that it worked for that film, but then afterwards projects like, you know, The Last of Us, the game or the TV series is using that same kit. So now we've created a, a, a much faster and cheaper way in production where we don't need to keep rebuilding rubble piles and those studios can be reusing those things. And we've taken all those assets and proliferated it. So now, you know, Artists, independent artists everywhere can use the same exact assets that were used in Last of Us or Terminator. Right. Got it. Great. Last of Us is a really cool example, too, because the original, or sorry, the Last of Us Part Two 
was the first big game to use Kit Bash right back when we when we launched in 2017. And then they used the kits again on the refurb of part one. And then they've used them in the TV show. So Last of Us has been a uh, a big franchise that that has consistently been using the products. But then individuals can go out there and make fan art of Last of Us, which you see you see a bunch of cool things. Film Riot is a, a cool influencer who made a piece that's a tutorial showing you how you could take the same assets and build a world. Um, and to Max's point on on how the individuals and Ted to your question and how individuals are able to adopt this. Um, Mission of Minerva is a great example. If, if you want to see what individual creators are able to do, you should watch the Mission of Minerva highlight reel. We had 30,000 artists in, I think, six weeks take the free kit and build a, a world that contributed to the galaxy. So you can see the level of, of uh, quality that individuals are able to make. Looks, the you know, finished episode, the finished highlight reel looks kind of like a trailer for Love, Death, and Robots. So it's, it's uh, kitbash3d.com. Kibash3d.com, yeah, or on, on YouTube, you can see tons of tons of cool stuff or on Instagram as well. Um, and Charlie, yeah, thank you very much for the the broader context of this. And I, I hope we're we're making sure that we are connecting with the, the type of information that'll be valuable to your to your listeners, because Cargo is our our new subscription software. Um, and to a, a number of, of things that we heard listening to the community over the first five years that we did this, uh, people wanted individual assets. They wanted the ability to find any asset within our library. And we started to, as we started building more and more assets, it became such a, a problem internally for us to solve. How do you manage a library of more than 10,000 assets? That's models and materials. Um, and, and once you break them up, how do you how do you go through them and find exactly what you need? So our library, we've, we've made consistent tagging throughout all of it. So you can type in a single search word by genre or asset type, or even look through the kits um, and get exactly that one model that you want. And import it. You have varying size uh, texture sizes, so you can build a, a really high fidelity model that you want very close to the camera, or you can have a, a lower fidelity model that you have in the background. Um, and then in one click, as Charlie was saying, you can import them into whatever 3D software you're using, be that Maya or Cinema 4D or Unreal, um, so that you can quickly have the ultimate Lego set you got the lego toy chest that you now have access to the entire library um, and i presume you can light them and shade them and customize them uh, as much as you want so they don't look like the same assets from game to game or, or movie or tv show to tv show you just their baseline assets and then you can once you bring them into that software package then they are with the, the effectively whatever the, the obg OB, obj um standard or whatever you're using to to bring them in and, ma and manipulate them right inside an engine inside a VFX package, whatever, correct? Yep. They're all built modularly and with um, tileable materials. So you can swap out. We have a whole material library and every material works on every asset, every model. So you can kind of mix and match. Um, and actually, to, to your point of what the file is, um, everything's built on USD, which oh, is USD, right, right. Pixar's format. And what's cool about that when we talk about interoperability is you can download one asset from cargo and that one file you can open in unity or unreal or blender or any 3d software without doing anything to it so um you know that's that's really a first kind of under the hood step of like hey we're introducing kind of usd in a more um, approachable way to um, a larger group of people 
Right. So you're taking advantage of, uh, you know, an open standard, open source piece of code that is so powerful, but really has really been relegated to very high end use cases. And you're kind of opening that up to a much larger, broader, broader audience that are going to build new and interesting creative things at different budget levels, which is always kind of intriguing to watch. Like I'm always a big fan because I came from that on the camera side of watching tools move from a vast separation between what the pros used and what the prosumers and eventually consumers used. And then we watch them unify. Uh, and, you know, eventually you could get the same visual quality. It didn't necessarily mean you had the same artistry level, but you could have the same tools that the big guys had. And then we saw that moving into software. And now you're obviously moving this into the asset world. Um, I always thought that TurboSquid would do something like this, but they never really turned this corner. It was more just a panacea of every asset known to man, uh, but didn't really organize it or allow it to kid up like you guys did. It was always just this sort of minefield of everything. You know, kind of thing. It's a tougher I, thing with them um, because it's an open marketplace, right? So, and, and that's a wonderful thing. It needs to exist in this ecosystem as well. But, you know, for us, we build everything in-house. It's curated. Right. Yeah. So it's a little easier for us to say, yeah, we have 10,000 assets, but we built all 10 or over that now, but we built them all the same exact way. And now we'll convert them all to the same format. And then, you know, every year we update them. And, you know, you can imagine after our first couple updates, we realized, wait, we really need to build software and technology to be able to update 10,000 assets at a time. We can't be doing this manually. And so it's kind of evolved over these years to, um, but we have kind of a, uh, a different situation that allows us to be more flexible and maneuverable with the library itself. Interesting. Yeah. Ted, you so, really nailed a couple interesting subjects I just want to hit on. The, the customizable nature of it allows you to take them out of the box and make something awesome immediately or completely change them and use them as a foundation that would save you in concept and in pre production and pre viz all the way to your final screen. But that base layer allows you know even the highest studios to make something that worked as the base, saved them 80% of their initial time, but then looks completely unique. And you can see that even from a from the consumer side in the the broad variety of things people are able to make even with the, the same asset. Um, and as this correlates to uh, the digital camera revolution and how that changed cinema, we talk about the red revolution all the time mm -hmm. and how in the, the early stages of the, the beginning of this century, um, how that shifted and the mentality of, you know, we, we only shoot movies on film. We only shoot movies on film. Show me that camera. That right. camera costs $17,000, which is less than what we are developing and processing our film for. Let's try it. That looks pretty good. And then we shot this movie on the red and now we shot a lot of movies on the red. And now the individual is able to make a shot in a day the way that that a, a studio was able to, and now everything shot digitally. Well, that warms my heart in many ways. That's great. <laughs> yeah, you're it's talking still... to the right guy about red camera. <laughs> well, I, I know it, and it's 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 you guys paved the way in so many ways for exactly what we're seeing in making 3D. You know, because mm -hmm. so much of the content that we've been consuming is 2D. Um, it's been created in a 2D process, but the third dimension. For movies and video games is what's already happening. You know, you can't you can't really throw a stone in Hollywood and and miss someone using real time, right? Three D game engines are now becoming more and more the way that we make movies. The way we make video games now, the way we make movies. We believe that same technology will be how we make the internet as a whole as we start going forward and backward. It's going to be a, the very same thing where 
it just becomes easier and easier for both the individual and the studio. And so then it becomes an inevitability that we want to adopt this technology. Well, and Charlie, you may, you may be thinking the next question or I may be thinking the next question. I'm curious if they're the same question. Uh, so I'll start it and see if you put your hand up and go, yes, that was my next question. It sounds like because of all the fervor of all things AI and, and the idea of, you know, as opposed to doing a manual search with a search bar and going, I'm trying to find an asset that looks like this. Um, are you guys thinking about, or maybe even beginning your experimentations with the idea of putting in, you know, a scene and saying, I want it to be this, 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 and this, and it will go and draw from your language pool and find those assets from your, you know, constrained, obviously very large, but still you, you can, you control it and, and contain it. So you don't have to do a traditional, like scrolling through stuff and look at stuff. You just ask it. Uh, and it will find a bunch of assets for you and start building it. Have you have you started to think about that? Because clearly, uh, you know what Runway is doing and Stability and a bunch of others and and what Meta talked about this week. Uh, they're talking about these you know transformations using text prompts to find the right visuals or create the right visuals. But I'm sure there's some well, controversy. Yeah, I, I think when you, you are... think about when you think about th prompting 3D virtual worlds into existence, which is yeah. the next step from prompting text and video, uh, the question becomes, how are those worlds going to be assembled? Uh, and I think that uh, there is a huge opportunity. Timing-wise, it may be soon. I mean, it may be a little early, but I certainly think that's kind of where the buck is going. Maybe, yeah. Will it find the right things? You know, will it will mm. it do what you expect it to do or not? And that's I, I imagine it's an interesting thing you guys at least have to be talking about over over a beer at some point, right? Definitely, yeah. I mean, we we can't ignore the the, the changes in technology right now, and and I think there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah, there's a potential space. potential whole new whole new <clears throat> line of business for you there. Yeah, I think you know there's a lot. I think there's a lot of opportunities with AI, and I think that. We're, we're early days here and it's happening really fast. Um, you know, I'll, I'll speak personally and I know Banks has a lot, lot more to say on this, but this is a constant conversation and we're definitely um, evolving our technology in a number of ways. Um, but I will say that, you know, we're so early that I don't know if we've fully figured out the best way to interface with this. And I think different people are gonna interface with it differently. Um, you know, text prompts is kind of the thing that is like front and center right now. But when you look at visual artists, text prompts are a foreign language, right? We we developed the ability to paint and draw because we weren't great with words at expressing. So we had to find all these other tools to do it. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity to evolve, you know, our interactions with AI and how we utilize that in the 3D space and overall what the user experience and user interface of that interaction is. Um, so those are things we're, we're very focused on, all in, in, in the name of our ultimate mission at Kipash, which is enable and inspire creators. And so if we're, we're adopting this technology, we want to find out how do we do this in the best way possible that enables people and inspires people. Great. I love it. Thanks. So, I'm sure you have a lot more on that. Well, I'm, I'm curious how much time we got. We have about uh, we we have about five minutes left, so um, uh, that sometimes uh, can be a long time in radio time. But uh, but hone in. But, uh, <laughs> 
Well, and I I do think this is the conversation. I think this is this is the beginning of a conversation that's going to be had over over many many years. Yeah. Um, and I think the the crucial piece is, as Max was saying, it's early days, um, and we get to spend a lot of time with uh, some of the largest companies in the world who are progressing this technology and the problem sets of making a two D image is different than making something in three D. Um, and there aren't nearly enough companies and people looking at the problem sets of how do we solve the z-axis on the internet for us to meet the rising demand. Mm. So there is so much opportunity for anyone out there who is looking to um, get into this space, into the metaverse or the 3D internet or the virtual frontier, whatever it is that you want to call it, um, and find find opportunity for things because it is just uh, similar to what we saw in the way the internet changed all business. We're going to see this change do, all business. Do some of your artists make a living exclusively from creating assets? When you say artists, you mean you mean kit bash artists? Well, you, you have you have two ways of creating assets, right? Some of it comes from the community, and some of it is made by you. No. No, it's a it's a good it's a good distinction. At Kibash, all everything we make is entirely made in house. And how big so, is the team? How 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 many people are are doing that work? Hundreds. I mean, you've got a lot of stuff going on. No, there. no, no. We, our our team's just north of fifty right now. Fifty. Okay. Um, but you know, for our kit creation, we have concept designers who are designing everything. Modelers. We have texture artists. We have technical artists. We have. Um, quite the pipeline, um, and we're producing you know three kits a month right now, and each wow. kit is wow. you know, about two hundred assets. So you're using pretty much every tool in the toolkit: all the three D modeling software, all the game engine software, all the uh, compositing software, and the effects software, and the ray tracing software. And it's so you're you're a good you're a good place for someone to work that wants to learn this stuff because you're going to learn every tool in the in the basket, right? Probably pretty. Fast. And you're going to be challenged with a different genre every time, right? Wow. Okay, you're going to go make this medieval siege warfare kit this week and um, or these few months. It takes about four to six months to build a kit, um, and and then the next one may be you know a sci-fi space opera or a cyberpunk city. So you know you're going to get a lot of different. So which genres. which are which are the most popular? I would think it's the eighty twenty rule going on here, right? You know, it depends on the use case. Large studios, you know, some of the more uh, realistic things like Manhattan or our city streets or, you know, things that maybe you wouldn't recognize as being 3D assets. Um, you know, for individual hobbyists, it kind of goes, you know, some people love making cyberpunk worlds. Some people make like making fantasy worlds. So that's kind of more of a blend. You know, it's kind of interesting to me, guys, the, the, for the the three of the three of you listening as i'm listening to you guys talk i i very often think about you know the the sort of analog uh metaphor the analog kind of reference point to something that is now migrated into the digital world so as you guys are talking about your process and the work that you're building calling them kits and how you divide de design them and define them and and allow people to access them at a low cost. I think about the kind of analog industry of, of the cinema business and the prop warehouse and the mill and the set mm -hmm. design companies and all the companies that keep all the things that, you know, people don't really realize there's tons of companies all around Southern California and other production hubs too, that have the old cars, 
right? And these are physical assets that you have to keep and, and maintain. And they live in these giant warehouses. Or, you know, in, in the early days of technology, people need, you know, props. So if you're going to make a movie around the 70s or 80s, you need the cell phones of that era. You need the computers of that era. You need the wallpaper of that era. You need all these things. And it's all physical. Uh, but of course, over time, you know, when we blow up cars these days, we very often don't really blow them up anymore because we can do photorealistic uh, stunts and cars. And when we have a, a fire truck that rams into a building or something, that's very <laughs> often CG, right? So it's kind of like you guys saw that wave coming and realized that there's a metaphor for this that comes from the, the cinema industry at large and now the gaming industry at large, where you used to use physical things. Now we just make them with software. But keeping them all is there's a whole industry around people that keep all those physical things. Um, and you're kind of doing that. Right. And then building new physical things all the time. So that's fascinating to me. It's really interesting. It's a it's a great call out, Ted. The the problems we faced internally are the same problems that the large studios and even the individuals face or, or, or can't even really bother to deal with. And so what we faced, what we built internally are a lot of tools that help us build and manage assets and, and create a pipeline that we can consistently update and manage. Um, and, you know, that's that's not the the fun, exciting, shiny stuff that so many studios um, are are known for and making their their continued living on or what the individual really wants to get into. An individual wants to take a thing, put the castle there and fly their spaceship into it any way that they want to. Um, and that uh, becomes very, very exciting when you think of where the new tools are going and how this opens up. And one thing we haven't really touched on is how much Epic and Unreal have progressed this space. And Fortnite being one of the largest interactive metaverses on earth and how that is, is what they've done recently is taken Unreal Engine and Fortnite and made uh, Fortnite, Fortnite Engine. Right, right, right. Yeah. And well, can your you assets got... be used in Fortnite Engine? So we, um, we've always had a very great partnership with Epic and they're an unbelievable uh, teammate to the entire community of, of, of this space evolving. Um, but we are uh, we announced with them at GDC, uh, they're making a new uh, mega store for Unreal and for uh, UEFN and uh, called Fab. And so we are partnered with them on Fab and we are actually making bespoke Kitbash X Fortnite kits that will work uh, in UEFN. Fantastic. Uh, that's all the time we have, guys. It was fantastic having you on the show. Um, again, Kitbash 3D, wonderful site just to page through it and see the fantastic art that they have created. So many imaginative worlds. Uh, you really could be like a kid with a train set if you know a little bit about game engines. So uh, thank you for that. Thanks for the free stuff. Uh, Kitbash has a lot of sample kits. Uh, that they occasionally uh, put up for grabs so that amateurs like myself can uh, can enhance their experience with game engines, uh, even if you're not making a Hollywood movie. So uh, thanks again. Hopefully we'll have you back uh, and hear more about your progress. And uh, good luck, you guys. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank, yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, thanks really good. Us. Really good to see you both. Thanks, guys.